Blue collar people are some of the grittiest, toughest, bravest human beings on the planet. Every building, bridge, and road was built on the backs of their hard work. Every piece of raw material was mined by their calloused hands. They manufacture our goods and transport them around the world. We see that strong outer shell, but there's more to every person than meets the eye. In this podcast, blue-collar business leaders tell their stories of courage and victory over crushing defeats. That's only possible because of a mental and emotional fortitude and a willingness to ask for help. It's our mission to bring hope to those of us who are strong on the outside, but may be living a life of quiet desperation on the inside. We'll do that by working together to tell the truth about the challenges we face and what it really takes to break through them. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tragedy to Triumph podcast. I am your host, Mick Carbo, and I'm here with the one and only, the amazing Sarah Impaglia. Uh, she's got such a such an amazing story that I'm that I'm so pumped for everybody on the on the uh, uh, in the audience here to hear today. She's got a super inspiring story, and to, to get us started, Sarah, why don't you just take a moment and say hello, introduce yourself, and let us know anything you would like us to you know to hear prior to jumping into the interview. Sure. So my name is Sarah. I am 32. I was born and raised in the suburbs of Syracuse, New York, and I still live here. I have been a welder for going on 10 years now. It's been six making industrial laundry equipment. I am a newlywed. Uh, First time. Thank you. We just bought our first house together. We're both first time homeowners, homeowners on Oneida Lake, and we have three dogs together. We love to spend a ton of time with, and I am also celebrating 10 years of sobriety. Yeah. Just, just uh, actually this past week, right? Four days ago on the 17th. Oh, congratulations. What a happy time it must be for you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And right around the holidays too, huh? Yep. Right before the holidays. Oh, so much to celebrate and be thankful for and to congratulate you for. That's awesome. Congratulations on being a newlywed. And, you know, and I know that this is um, uh, this is kind of part of the story that we're about to get into is how you, you know, how you became a welder and how you, you know, you you got to the place where you were married and had your own home and you, you know, started a, a furry family there, it sounds like. Oh, they're yes. there in the background. They're saying hello. Yes, they are. Very cool. Yeah. So, so tell us, uh, tell us, Sarah. Like, what? Um, where did the story begin? What was the, you know, the adversity or the obstacle that you that you were faced to get you here where you are today? Are the dogs too loud in the back? No, it's totally fine. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we have a lot of dog lovers who are listening right now. I, cer- okay. I certainly am. So it's all yeah. good. Good. Okay. So it really started about 10 years ago. I was struggling with a heroin addiction and I made some poor choices. I committed burglary and I was caught and sentenced to five years in state prison and five years post-release. And it was when I got to prison that you have to pick 
a, a prison job and welding happened to pay the highest and my brothers do it. So I tried that. We made grills and trash cans that you would see like in any New York state park or anything. And I happened to like it so much that when I got out of welt or out of prison, I put myself through trade school and still do it today. Got it. Yeah. Damn, thanks for sharing all that. So, so how did, how did the, your, your heroin use actually start? Like, did you, you didn't just wake up one day and say, Oh, I'm going to go out and try heroin. What was that like? Okay. So I, I am a believer that it runs in my genes. It is heavy in my family, but not only that in high school, I was like, the kid who was getting drunk before school or in class and smoking weed and really just trying anything, you know? So after it was the year after I graduated high school, I met a boyfriend actually at an AA meeting and yeah, he, he had, um, a script for Suboxone. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it, it's similar to like methadone to okay. keep you off. But it, if you've never tried it before, it it messes you up like like pain pills. And I I tried it from him, and then soon after that, it led to heroin, and then it was like off to the races from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell tell us a little bit about off to the races, you know, like if you, you know, you, you, you obviously did some stuff that landed you into jail for a while, but like, what was the, what was the process leading up to that? And and what was, you know, what, what did it feel like to you? What was life like back then? It was so out of control. Like that's the only way I can think to really put it. Like it's hard for me to imagine what my mindset was then now just because like I cannot relate to that girl at all I I can't believe the person and the choices I made but it I was just like stealing from everybody you know and just not living an honest life and your habit is growing so then like the lies and the stealing grows and then it just gets out of control and before you know it you're just you know you're screwed yeah yeah sure was it were were, what would what did it feel like for you though you know like what when you were sort of looking at your life at that time what what was that like Definitely hopeless. Like I felt like I was at the bottom of a black hole and I will never get out alive. Like I couldn't picture myself ever living life without drugs or some sort of something, you know, and then on top of all the legal trouble I was in, I just felt like life was over. So that when, so you, you got arrested multiple times during all of this. Yes. Yes. Well, it was, I was arrested on December 15th and charged with, I think like five counts of burglary or something like that. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, the judge let me out on, um, 
it's almost like almost like probation but not i think it was called pre-trial release but then two days later as they were investigating they had uncovered like other houses that i had broken into and um so i was rearrested on the 17th for more charges and the judge obviously he, he brought me to jail that day so you were 19 at the time when you when you got arrested right when I first tried heroin, I was 19. Oh, when you first tried heroin, you were 19. Okay. Yes. So then how long was it between that point and, you know, this arrest? About four years. Four years. So there was, yeah. there was four years of your life that you were, you were living this way. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, on and off. I'd have periods of clean time in between. So what, what happened to make you go clean in the meantime? Yeah, like if they're if they're during those periods between nineteen and when you got arrested. Um, I had gotten a DWI, and after that, I moved down with my mom in Pennsylvania and tried sobriety for a little while there. But then her and my stepdad got divorced, and that was kind of traumatizing for me. So I moved back to New York and relapsed again. Yeah. Okay. And when, so when you moved back to New York, was it, did you hook up with the, the same friends that you were hanging out with before that were kind of living that life? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Hanging out with bad people and that same boyfriend on and off. And Okay. So, all right. So tell me, tell me more about this, this time when you got arrested. Like you got, you got arrested and then you got sentenced and all that. So what, what was, what was like sort of the turning point for you? Um, like to stay clean and be dedicated to sobriety and stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, that, so that, that sounds like the first kind of part of the, the journey of things going different for you. Yeah. Okay. So that didn't happen until like, I want to say in the beginning of my prison sentences, I was arrested and then I was in county jail for six months and I went through withdrawal in there. And that is like the most absolute horrible experience of my life. They don't give you anything. And I want to say it lasted like the whole six months, like maybe the real bad physical stuff was over like after a month or two, but yeah. like not being able to sleep and your joints aching and all of that, that lasted definitely the entire six months. And I just, when I got to prison, they, the girls would like cheek their meds and stuff. And I dabbled around in that um when i was new in prison and then um one day i went to shoe for 6 days cuz i got caught with medication what it what and, did you mean uh the whole um okay. like you're by yourself in the box and that yeah. that is like the lowest of the low like if you think you're in a hole in prison that shit is no joke. Like that is mental torture. But it was when I got out of shoe for six days and I was on loss of life for 90 days in prison, which 
that means that any little privileges that you do have in prison were gone. I couldn't go to the yard. I couldn't go to the gym. I couldn't go to the rec room. I couldn't buy commissary. I couldn't have visits. I couldn't have phone calls. I couldn't, it was nothing. I sat in my bed for 90 days and it was days. Wow. 90 days. Yep. Damn. Yep. It was, yep. It was right before the holidays. And, um, most people would have got longer. Some people thought I like snitched or something in there, but I, I cried to the lieutenant and I told her, I'm like, listen, I'm a drug addict. I'm due to prison. It was there. I couldn't say no. And she let me out after six days, but at 90 days loss of life. And it was during that time period. I remember thinking to myself, like, if you can't stay off shit in here, mm. there's no way that you're going to be able to do it when you get out. So. Yeah. I buckled down. And when I was in there, like I said, I welded, I was on the the lawn and like, what's that called? The, the yard crew. I did that for a while. I went to like an actual college in there where professors come in and teach you. And well, hold on before, before you get there, what, tell us more about what that experience was like in the hole and, and having, yeah, that what what is it called? The loss of life. Yeah, I'm not sure if that is a term that the facility called it, or if it's something that That's the inmates, inmates called it. Yeah. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, I feel the hole is just the worst, and there's there's two different kinds. Like there's lock. And that's like where you're by yourself, but I, you, I, I never went to lock. I only went to shoe, but lock, you can have like a little more, like you can have some of your property and your books and okay. write letters and stuff like that. But in shoe, like you're literally just in a concrete room with a toilet and a bed and a flimsy mattress and nothing else. Ooh. They handcuff you to take you to the shower uh, you can go out for an hour or wreck, but when I was in there, it was like the dead of winter. And I, I, I don't know. I didn't really know any of the other girls who were in there. So, I mean, I, I stayed, I stayed in there for six whole days and yes. it's the worst. Well, what, when you say the worst, describe that. Like what was the, what did that, what does that mean to you? Like you don't even know what time of day it is or like, I mean, I didn't lose track of time, but I could see how if I was in there any longer, you could because like you don't even know what time of day it is. And all you have is time to think like it's it is just like mental torture. I mean, they, they do come around with a book cart like every two days, but like your first day, you know. There's nothing really there. I did read. I read The Godfather. I remember that while I was in there. But reading is really the only thing that you have to take your mind off of stuff. And like, I was just worried because like, I I can't call my family and they're going to wonder why I'm not calling. And you're worried about that. And then when my family finds out, are they going to be disappointed in me? Like, what do I tell them? You know, so. Yeah. 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 So you were, you were scared, it sounds like, and, you know, didn't know what to do and didn't have anybody yes. to talk to or anywhere to turn. And that's got to be really stressful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So then what was that, what was that 90 days like after that, when you had the, you know, loss of all your privileges? 
that sucked because I, I came from like a privileged housing unit for inmates who do well and like don't are there they have nothing on their record and uh when i got out i went to one of the most like uh one of the units known for like being crazy you know and having yeah. all the people who get in trouble but i mean it made sense i was coming out of shoe but so that's where they sent them was this one unit and i was nervous i was really nervous about that because i made friends and stuff you know i was um sure because i was on that special dorm room and it was all girls i worked with welding and stuff so i didn't know anybody and but but at the same time i was just so relieved like to not be in shoe anymore like anything was better than shoe you know the the food because the food in there is horrible and if you don't have family to that that support you and takes care of you it's even harder i had family and it was still hard but i know women in there who had nothing yeah sure wow and that's hard yeah yeah okay so during so what was it was during this time between shoe and that 90 day kind of probationary period afterwards that it sounds like you decided you were going to get clean and stay clean yes yeah so tell me, tell me about your thought process in making that decision. Okay. So my thought process on getting clean. Okay. Now I remember, cause I feel like there were, I really didn't have a choice, you know, like at first you go to jail, like you can't really get drugs. And then I was in prison and I did, and I got caught and I was scared of getting caught again. And not only that, like, um, you could have time added on this and that and that was a big factor in the beginning and not only that drugs are like very expensive in there and I had family help but I wouldn't it really comes down to like buying drugs in there or eating food oh wow yeah I mean they're they're expensive so in the beginning I'd say it was like no, because I do. I do remember saying to myself, if you can't do it in here, you're not going to be able to do it at home. And I feel like the fact of of being so scared of getting caught or having time added on that just like reinforced it, you know? Yeah. And I, I actually remember like right before I was leaving to come home, like out of prison, I was so scared that I wasn't sure. Like I knew I didn't want to do drugs, but I was scared. Like, what if my mind just flips when I get out and I want to do drugs again? And I've just been so grateful that 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 hasn't happened. I feel like the more I accomplish stuff, it's it's like I have more and more to lose, you know? So, so like the farther I go, it's like, I don't want to lose this and that. And that motivates me to stay clean. Yeah, that's awesome. I, and look, I, I feel like there are people that are listening to this right now that may have uh, a similar experience, you know, that they're, they're may, they may not be in jail right now, or they may have never gone to jail because of, of drugs, but maybe they have, you know, they have uh, an issue where they need to, you know, find a way to, to stop, you know, yeah. and they need to, they need to get clear on what, what's going to work for them? What's actually going to have them 
do the work that is going to be necessary for them to stop and stay stopped, right? Yes. Yeah. So it, it sounds like there's a couple of key things in it for you that there's, you know, uh, um, uh, a desire to um, create, you know, opportunities for yourself and then create, you know, more and more success in those opportunities and have more and more to lose so that there's, you know, kind of an absolutely. impetus to stay that way, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, cool. So, so how long were you actually in prison for? I did three years and nine months. I got out, I got 10 months of good time. And then because I was in college for three years, that also took off an extra six months. Okay. So, so what were those, um, experiences like for you the, how did you get the opportunity to get a get a job in prison and to do the college thing uh okay so every inmate has to have a job uh but the job i was doing in industry that is a privileged job like if you get tickets and are constantly in trouble and this and that, then you will get kicked out, which I wound up getting kicked out eventually. I, I think I did it for like a year before I got kicked out. But um, let me see. Um, I keep losing train of thought. That's okay. Take your time. Well, what was the question again? Like how, how did you decide to get the job that you got and go to college? Okay. Okay. So welding uh, paid the most, it paid 38 cents an hour. And that was a big deal for me. Like I, I really didn't want to do it cause I was interested in it. I just thought to myself like, Oh, well, my brothers do that and it, it pays the most in yeah. here. So, so why not? And that's how I got into that. And then um, I lived on a special unit with all those girls who did that program. And there was a few other girls I became close with who were around my age. And we heard about the college thing and that you have to be accepted on too. Like they, they don't accept certain crimes if it's like real violent oh. and stuff like that. So I had to apply for that and that you also have to be ticket free. Like you cannot get anything or they'll, they'll kick you out of, of college. And, um, I applied for that and you know, it was free college and it was yeah. right. Like sure. to me, it was just like, what better way to spend your time, you know, yeah. actually doing something. Yeah, I get that. So at, at the, at, at what point in the, you know, the three plus years was college and welding. So those were, that was a few months into it because when you're new, you have to do reception. And that was like at another prison in like down by the city and I want to say I was there for like a month and then when you get up to the prison I was at Albion you're you're still like in a reception unit kind of for like the yeah. first month or two and yeah I'm trying to think actually I did get in trouble and then I was still in college because I got in trouble 
in the beginning. You just can't, you can't get in trouble. You have to be out of trouble for so long. I think it is. Okay. Actually, I don't remember how that worked out because now that you ask, I did get in trouble in the beginning and then it was, I want to say like six months into it because I had been out. I think it's like 90 days you have to be ticket free or something like that. And then I started industry. I got kicked out of industry for stealing a keychain. That my little uh, a girl I worked with in there, she she put me up to it and told me how to do it, and then she told on me right after. Oh man. Yep, and then I was on the um, the lawn crew, and college college was around the same time, and I did that up until the very end. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, three. And, yep, three whole years. And did you did you get a degree in there? I am like, I think three classes shy of getting my associates. Oh, nice. Uh, when I got home, I almost finished online, but I, at the last second I canceled and I went with trade school instead, just because yeah. I feel like I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with a liberal arts degree. Yeah, I got it. You know, yeah. when I knew welding, it was like 98% uh, job placement rate after yeah. graduation. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you, you know, this was a kind of a unique situation in that you didn't really, you didn't really ask somebody for help. It was kind of, you know, it was kind of forced on you by going to jail. Right. But during, during that experience, it seems like you got all the help you needed to get clean, stay clean and learn a trade that has become your career from here on out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but another another thing that I that I love about this story, Sarah, is that you had to be willing to accept that help too. You know, this isn't this isn't some kind of magic process where you know you you start working a job and you um, you know go to school and then all of a sudden your life is is uh, <laughs> better magically, right? This was a this was a process and it took a lot of hard work and it took a lot of grit and resilience and it took you making that choice. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, did you have any, anything else in mind for your, for your future when you, when you were, you know, kind of when you were still in prison and you were doing everything that you needed to do every day to, you know, to, to make all this happen? Um, honestly, I'm not sure what I thought my life would look like. I mean, I know I told myself over and over that I wanted to go to school when I got out, mm-hmm. but I, I wasn't sure because um, I wanted to do welding. And I also was, uh, I don't actually, I actually thought that I was going to graduate with my associates. And I kept saying, when I get out, I'm going to go to trade school. So, so I feel like school was the only thing that I knew for sure I was going to do. Like when I look back now, I had, I had no idea that I would have done so much and like like I have a husband and a house you know like a homeowner it's just wild it's wild tell us tell us that part of the story Sarah so you got you got out right and how long ago was that uh that was on September 24th 2014 and my aunt and uncle took me in and I lived with them and my cousins 
and I took the bus everywhere and I worked at the mall and um I mean I what did you do at the mall I was a cashier at Burlington Coat Factory and then shockingly I have no idea how a few weeks later the manager loved me so much and they said they did a background check but they made me the accountant and put me in charge of all their cash. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I did, I did that at the mall and I also did outpatient. That was like a parole stipulation and I saved my money. And then in February, uh, the, the welder fitter class started and I did that and I worked at night and I, I what had a really, what had you make the decision to do the, the trade school? So you're, you're working at the mall, right? And then did, did you, did, did an opportunity just pop up or did you kind of know, uh, uh, or was there a point in time when you made this decision that you were going to go ahead and get that, you know, trade school degree? So my first like two weeks home, I obviously didn't have a job. And I spent like, I, I do like chores for my aunt and uncle to stay busy. And then that's all I did was like research, like jobs and school. And I remember I did, I was all signed up to go to Madai. That's the name of the, the college to finish. Right. And I just, uh, my uncle, he knew the welding instructor. And I feel like, I, I'm not sure exactly. I must've looked into it or something. And they had an open house where I could like go and meet the instructor and this and that. And so I went there and I met the instructor and then, um, I, that's when I thought, like, I heard the job placement rate and that's what made me decide, like, this is going to be something more steady and then I can count on. And I, I really loved welding when I was in there. So this is just a better choice. And then I remember dropping out of the, the, on the online school and sticking with that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So did, did you, did you do trade school while you were working at Burlington Code Factory? Yep. I did. School was every day, Monday through Friday for like eight or nine hours. So I did that during the day. And then like, I know my dad, my dad gave me like a shitty little car to drive around. And I, I really only worked enough for gas and food really. And my aunt and uncle, um, just like my family. I I really did. I had a lot of family support and that's a big deal too. So they allowed me to save my money. And, um, then the last month of school was a internship and I interned where I'm still working now. And then when I got hired there, I was still living with my aunt and uncle. And I mean, I started paying them a little rent, but they didn't, it was nothing too much. And to me starting out at, I think it was like 1650. I started out out at or something to me, that was like insane money. You know, like I had never had a real job like that with like benefits and a 401k and yeah, really quick. I saved up, like, I think it was like 10 grand and I, I got my two dogs and I got a brand new Mazda and it, yeah. And I I was in a really toxic relationship. I will say my first like year and a half home. Okay. 
But then that ended. And I think it was like six months after I met my husband at, at work. Well, we had already knew each other, but we talked and he asked me out on a date to get up with our dogs. And nice. And that's how that started. <laughs> so even even throughout that toxic relationship that you were in, still no no drugs, no relapse. No. And when I think back, like I am so proud of myself for making it through that relationship. Yeah. And it's kind of a crazy story. I don't I don't talk about this much, but this kid I met in county jail. We were both in county jail at the same time. And I met him through the ventilation system. Like you yell through the vents and he had wow. a prison sentence the same amount of time as mine. He got out like a few months before wow. me. So we wrote each other our whole prison sentences. And then we got out, we were together, but he had portrayed himself to be one way through letters all these wow. time. And he told me that he didn't have any addiction or alcohol issues because that was a big deal to me. And I found out that that wasn't true mm. either. And, you know, looking back now, I asked myself, like, why did you stay in it so long? But I like to see the good in people. And I think I can change him and, yeah. you know, all the promises. And but it w when it got real bad, I did put my foot down. and I, I can't do this. Yeah. Good for you. Good for Thank you. you. So did throughout all of this process, did you do any recovery work or any therapy or anything like that? I did. I did inpatient or not inpatient. I did outpatient. My first, I want to say like they had me in there. I want to say at least six months. And then meetings I would do every now and then, but I have to be truthful that I am not a fan of meetings. When okay. I first got home, I don't know if it was from person, but I had like real bad anxiety issues and I didn't like strangers and small talk. So like I didn't really, the whole premise is like giving strangers your phone number and this and that. So what I do is I have a health coach who I see. Okay. And I prefer that and like the use of spirituality and prayer and yeah. God, positive affirmations. And I have an amazing family and some people think you can't do it without NA and AA, but I think, I think recovery can look all different types of ways and oh, yeah. uh, all I, different I things that work. Yeah, totally. No, I was, uh, and I was just, I was kind of looking to see if there, if there was anything that you either did or you are still doing. And it sounds like there is. And, you know, yeah. that's part of the, the main uh, point of what we're looking at with this show is to, is to tell people's story of, you know, all the tragedy and challenges and obstacles that they've had to go through and everything, but also, you know, what kind of help they needed to get to in order to, you know, move through all of that and create the lifestyle that they have now. In yeah. my, in my experience, I haven't talked to one person who, you know, knuckled up and did all of their recovery all on their own. I have not met one person, not one. No, I don't think it's possible. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you have your faith and you have, you know, prayer and you have your health coach and you have all the things that you're doing, the positive affirmations and everything. I mean, it, you know, it, it goes to show our audience that, you know, you can have some, you know, you can have some real crazy shit happen in your life like you did. Right. And you can even have to go to jail for several years and you can still live a great life, but you yes. gotta be willing to 
ask for help. And you've got to yeah. be willing to take that help and to, to accept it and to do what you need to do to recover. So it's work. It's work. Oh yeah. It sounds, it sounds like it was, it was for you. Yeah. So, so Sarah, what is it, uh, what's it like now for you? Life is just so good. Uh, I feel like, I don't know. I'm just always happy. Like it feels good to have a husband who is just like my best friend and, you know, doesn't judge me for anything and I can just be myself. And I mean, that's amazing. And to have a house, like, I can't believe that we have a house like on the lake. Like, I don't know, to me, it's just, it blows my mind to me. It couldn't get better. Like I have a job that I love and like, I enjoy going to. And to me, it's like, isn't that the point of life, you know, like to enjoy what you do every day. And I mean, I have an amazing family. I just have so much stuff to be, to be grateful for. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's totally cool. I'm so yeah. I, uh, the, the, the listeners won't be able to see this, but it's just so I'm so grateful to see that big ass smile on your face right now. That's yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So Sarah, when you were sitting in prison, especially during those times when you were in the shoe and you had that, you know, 90 days of kind of loss of life and you were you know, even even throughout the rest of the time when you're just you know you're working making 38 cents an hour did you ever think that this was possible that you would be that you would have uh, a marriage to your best friend live on a house that you own next to a beautiful lake up in New York you know have have dogs and a car and making the money that you make now no no like I always say when I think about it too hard, like it really makes me cry. And I feel like the the person who said it to me first was my boss that I work with. I've known him six years. And if you think about it, like the people you work with, you spend like, you know, 10 hours a day, every day. And he's the first person who ever said that to me. He said, you know, Sarah, looking back, even just like a few years ago when you first got home, like did you imagine that you'd that that your life would look like this and it's just like no i i never did and you know you know what it is that was like a a big life changing thing for me that i just thought of it's like when you start to love yourself and value yourself i feel like it's when i don't know just for so long i i just thought of myself as my crime mm. you know like as um, that people, I was always scared of people that like I went to high school with, cause like my name was all over the newspapers and this and that. And I just all thought that they thought I was like the biggest, you know, piece of crap. And yeah, just when you get to a point, like when you know that, that, that isn't you and that you're worthy of love. And I just always thought for a while that like all the shitty things that happened to me were karma that like I deserved yeah. it. Yeah. And then one day I woke up and it was a lot of work I did with my health coach, but loving yourself, it's, it's a big deal. Oh, it's huge. I mean, look, everybody can hear it in your voice right now. And and I have the benefit of being able to see it. And it's just such a, it's an amazing thing. Thank you for doing that work. Thank you for learning to love yourself and, and to sort of, I love what you said. You're, you sort of, um, you know, de-identified with the things that you did. 
And you yeah. know, you you heard my story, you listened to my, you know, my story on, you know, the the first episode here on the podcast and you and I have some things in common and and this is one of them that I really related to myself as all of that horrible did, you know? Yeah. And, and not really the, you know, the the um you know, the, 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 the lovable person that I actually am, you know, the powerful leader and husband and father and business owner that I, that I knew I was in my heart ultimately. Right. But it was, it was covered up by the way that I felt about what I did. So I really, I really acknowledge you and recognize you for doing all of that hard work. And it's, isn't it so interesting that some of the hardest work is to actually relate to yourself as lovable and to fall back in love with yourself? Absolutely. And I see, I didn't even know what's what I didn't even know that that's what I was missing yeah. until I had it. And then I was yeah. just like, wow, like I don't really suffer from anxiety anymore or depression anymore. And it just solved it solved a lot of life issues for me when I yeah. realized, hey, you're not a piece of crap. You're a good human being and everyone makes mistakes and you can fix it. Yeah. Yeah, you you definitely can. And that's that's one of the biggest lessons I hope everybody hears that's listening to this right now. So, Sarah, for you, so are you going to be a welder forever or what? Um, I wouldn't mind welding forever. Uh, I, I do see myself owning some type of business someday. I have a welder out in the garage that I haven't even used yet, but I do see myself someday making like little artsy stuff like for the garden. Bear says hello. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, like little cute stuff like that. And then uh, me and my husband down the line, we, we really want to open like a doggy daycare like where we go pick them up in the morning and then drop them off at night too. Nice. Yeah. Nice. But I, I see welding fitting in there somehow, even if it's a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sarah, keep dreaming because you know, you keep, you keep loving yourself and you keep dreaming for a, a bigger, better, brighter future. And I know it's possible for you. It's awesome. It's so the, it's so great how these stories that we get to tell on the podcast are, you know, people, people coming from this place where, what they have now, the life they have now was completely unpredictable back then. And you're just one of those people like you, you know, it's a, it's such a, such an inspiring story to know all of the things that you went through and for you to end up where you are now is just the most amazing thing. It's a miracle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Sarah, in our, in our last couple of minutes here, what, if there was a moral to the story, if there was one sort of nugget or a few nuggets that you want to leave for our audience, what would that be? That you can't do it alone. We were talking about that earlier. Um, that you can't do it alone. This is kind of like goes out to like, I guess, I always uh, aim, aim my message, I suppose, at like other women who want to get into blue collar and then also other addicts. I know they can relate is that you can, you can never do it alone and you shouldn't be afraid to ask for help. Mm. And, um, let's see what else I think finding some sort of God or higher power is also important 
and leading an honest life. And you gotta, you gotta find at least one person that you can open up to and tell everything to. I know for me that every time that I really felt like I wanted to use, I would talk to anybody who would listen. Like, and for me, that's what helped, you know, talk the, your, our secrets make us sicker, they yeah. say. And I, I believe that. So anytime I would feel that I would just talk to, talk to anybody who would listen. And, uh, yeah, I guess it, that goes back to that. You can't do it alone and don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be ashamed. We're all just humans doing our best in life with what we know to get by every day. And, yeah. and I guess, I guess that's it. <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks for that, Sarah. It's uh, it's it's brilliant, you know. Like everybody, everybody's got a story. Everybody has some, you know, some shit that happened, right? And and you know, it it may or may not be as um, you know, as dramatic as your story, or maybe it's more dramatic than your story. But I think the the key message here is that it's possible to have it go a different way if you're willing to sort of you know dream and and make that choice that you want to live a better life and a different life. And and to all of those great points that you just made, if you're willing to open up and, you know, talk to somebody and kind of let it all out and, you know, be willing to be made a difference for, like to have that person that you're talking to actually be able to make a difference for you with the things that they say, or just because they're sitting there willing to be listened, you know, willing to listen to you, you know, then things can go different. And not only can they go different, but they can create an amazing life, a different, yes. amazing life. And that's what yes. you have. And I think that's so beautiful and cool. Yes. And one last thing, baby steps are key. Ah. Baby steps. That's an yeah. important one too. Baby steps. Take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> and don't be too yeah. hard on yourself. Really don't be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, so many, so many people that uh, are listening to this right now are, are wondering if it's okay, you know, if it's okay for them to have their story and you being brave enough and courageous enough to share yours, I feel like is going to give them hope, you know? I hope so. Yeah. Every, everybody, everybody's got something like this that, uh, you know, that they're holding on to. And if you are willing to let go of it and, and do the work to get through it, then look at what's on the other side, you know? Yep. So Sarah, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate, again, your willingness, your courage, your bravery to, to show up and kind of bear your soul to the audience here. And, and again, hopefully this, you know, this makes a difference for one person or a couple of people and they go and have their life changed forever by the, by the result of you, you know, sharing. So thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Oh, good, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. All yes. right, everybody. This is uh, this is Mick Carbo and Sarah Impaglia here. We're signing off for this last episode of the uh, Tragedy to Triumph podcast. Check us out next week for the next one. It's our hope that this story makes a difference for another person. If it helps one person, we believe we've done our work. Consider telling a friend about this podcast. You might just make a difference for them too. Accomplishment Coaching, the world's finest coaches training program. I owe much of the man I am today to the work I've done and the relationships I've built in this community. For anybody out there who wants to start a career as a coach or enhance their skills as a coach, look no further. 
transform your life and set yourself up to win in your coaching business at the same time. Find out more at accomplishmentcoaching.com.